Well, thank you very much, Jeff, and thank you for the kind invitation to be here with all of you here today. I'm very grateful to be able to open up the Word of God and consider those glorious truths that He has given to us about not only those things which will be, but also those things which are right now. And that's really what I want us to think about here this morning is the truth that pertains to our life today as it relates to the future prophecies that I know we've been talking about here last night and again this morning. And I'm so thankful for Dr. Rice's presentation here this morning as uh, he has helped us understand how perhaps how some of these things that we see taking place in our life may connect to the future fulfillment of uh, a biblical prophecy. And I was very grateful for the clarification that you gave to us there at the very beginning, Dr. Ice, about the, the difference between preparation and fulfillment, that the things which we see happening around us may well be preparation for the end times, uh, but not necessarily the direct fulfillment of those end times. That's a question that I will often get as a pastor is, are these things that we see happening around us the direct fulfillment of this prophecy or that prophecy? And the answer that he just so helpfully explained to us is that these are things that may well be in preparation, but not necessarily in direct fulfillment. And, and I think that's just such a helpful understanding for us to have, um, particularly as believers, as we look to the future. Because we, we do look and we do see all of the chaos of life in a fallen world. We hear about these things that have just been presented to us that are all aligning in preparation for what is to come. And I think we would be remiss if there was not a part of us that did not look at those things and say, Oh my, the world is really a, a hot mess. This is not going in a, in a good direction at all. And, and that might cause us to have some level of fear consternation in our hearts as we think through these things. But I also think that it's important for us to remember the reality that Jesus has said to his followers in John chapter 16, for instance, in this world, you are going to have trouble. But, he says, right after that, fear not, for I have overcome this world already. And that is the confidence that I want for us to spend the next hour here this morning looking at together. The confidence that we have in the person of our Jesus Christ. Not only the crucified Jesus, but the risen Jesus. And not just the risen Jesus, but the ascended on high glorified Jesus. I want us to see the Jesus that is ours as he truly is today. And that's going to give us great hope in the face of all the things that we see happening around us. Now, when it comes to prophecy, there are many, many subjects that I love to think about, such as the, the timing of the rapture or the nature of the millennial kingdom. And, and these are great and important things for us to consider together as we look at what God has revealed to us in his holy word about those things that are coming. But as you look at the book of Revelation, it's also very clear that before you can consider those things which will be, the expectation in the book of Revelation, that's very clearly stated, is that we would first grapple with that which is. 
See, Jesus very clearly in the introduction to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 19, gives John the command. He says there, write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. And that really is the outline for the book of Revelation. And the majority of the book is pertaining to those things which will be. But before you get into any of those things which will be, first, Jesus wants to make sure that we grapple with the reality of what truly is today. And what is today is the reality of Jesus Christ standing there as the Lord of his church. And that is the vision that comes to John in Revelation chapter 1. And so while there are many texts that we could go to that pertain to future prophecy, there is actually a prophetic text that is given to us that pertains to life today, right here in the church. I want for us to think through that text, the reality of the glorified Jesus, who is our King, the one whom we now serve, the one who gives us the confidence and the hope and the peace to trust in his plan, regardless of the chaos of the world in which we are living today. So, even as we think through the chaos that we see around us, I think it's going to be very helpful for us to pair that chaos with the, the control, the sovereign control of our Lord Jesus Christ that is given to us right here in Revelation chapter 1. You know, it's interesting to me that as it relates to current believers in the church and the way that they are to think about prophecy, Dr. Rice just finished explaining to us the next prophetic event on God's prophetic chronological timetable. It is the rapture of the church. And I find it very interesting that the book of Revelation opens and ends with an admonition to us as believers in the church to look for the appearing of our blessed one and only Savior, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can see that there in chapter 1, verse 7. You can see it again at the end in chapter 21, verse 20. And in that final chapter, Jesus concludes not only the book of Revelation, but he also concludes the revelation of Scripture itself with the statement, Behold, I am coming soon. And he says that not once, not twice, but three times in the space of one chapter. And John says, therefore, even so, based on that promise, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And should that not be our perspective as well, as we think about the world in which we live today, as we think about the future prophecy of what is going to take place in this world and how all of that relates directly to us. So in a conference where we are rightly occupied with an understanding of all those things which will be. I think it is most fitting for us to stop and take stock here this morning of the king which sits enthroned in heaven above right now today. For it's only as we see him as he is that we are allowed to dwell upon those things which will be. So it's important for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who will fulfill in himself 
everything that God has promised. Who is he today? And what is he doing? Well, there is a prophetic text that is given to us in Revelation chapter 1 that pertains to the answer of just that question. And I, I really do love this text because Revelation 1, 12 through 20, it, it brings into focus, into 3D living color, if you will, a very complex theological reality about the work of Christ and the work that he is doing right now amongst his church, a work that gives us confidence to believe that he is sovereign over all things, even that which will take place in the future. And, you know, it's true that the consistent picture of Jesus throughout the New Testament is that he is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king. That's not new information to us. But what is very unique here in Revelation chapter 1 is the way that we see Jesus engaged in all three of these offices at the very same time. And that makes this a profoundly important text because it's really the only place that I know of in the New Testament where we have a portrait of Christ's present work on our behalf in all of its fullness. So rather than just looking at an aspect of future prophecy, I want to look at a prophetic text that is undeniably in force for today. A text that, as we gaze upon the work of King Jesus, is going to qualify us to have hope in all the future fulfillment of all the different prophecies that have been made. See, this morning we're going to see here in this text that the glorified Jesus is doing three things in his church today. The first thing that we see here in this vision that comes to the Apostle John is that Jesus right now is serving as our perfect priest. Look with me there at verses 12 through 15. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. See, there's a voice that has come to John and said, record all these things that that I am about to show you. And he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So as we get into this, we're going to see the priesthood of Jesus here on our behalf in the church today as we look at the different attributes that are ascribed to him right here in this vision. If you look at the first part of verse 12 there, you'll see as John turns to see the voice that's speaking to him, what he beholds is something that, as the vision progresses, just absolutely knocks him to the ground and scares him half to death. He sees nothing short of the glorified heavenly Christ. In short, what he's seeing there is Jesus as he actually is in heaven today. Now, it is very important from a hermeneutical perspective to recognize that the Jesus that John is seeing here is not some highly stylized metaphoric vision that's just unique to Revelation. And many interpreters will try to get away with with saying that, that that Jesus, he looks this way in the book of Revelation because, well, it's apocalyptic literature and therefore it's all symbolic. But we know better, don't we? We're at a prophecy conference for crying out loud. See, we should reject that interpretation 
with all the force that we can muster. And here's the reason why. See, this is not some symbolic presentation of Jesus. No, this is a literal, physical description of who he is. And we know that because it's consistent with what the rest of the scriptures teach us about who the glorified Christ actually is. In Daniel chapter 10, for instance, Jesus there also shows up to speak to Daniel. And the description that's given to us in Daniel 10 prior to his incarnation as he resides in the fullness of his pre-incarnate glory is a carbon copy of what we see and find here in Revelation chapter 1. It's also the way that Jesus appears to Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 during his incarnation. So, this is the reality of the glorified Jesus. And so, therefore, when we get to this text in Revelation, if it's consistent with the rest of the the revelation of Scripture, then why would we all of a sudden assume that this is symbolic? No. Now, see, this is the fiery Jesus of heaven in his glorified form. A man like unto us? Yes. He's described here as the son of man, but he's also very much greater than us. See, there is no precious moments, cartoonized version of Jesus in heaven. No Jesus that looks just like you. There is this Jesus. And he, as John explains to us, is literally awesome in every regard. In in the significant sense of that very overused word, he is awesome. So let's look at him. In verse 12, the second half of it there, you can see the nature of Christ's work as a high priest in the very first detail. And it's instructive here to pay attention to John's first description of him as he is standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now I know that that is confusing imagery for sure. And there's going to be a lot of imagery in this text that we're going to seek to explain. And all of it can be clearly understood by just simply opening your Bible, flipping your way around, and then looking at the way that these images are used elsewhere in Scripture. But there are a couple of features here in this text that cannot be understood easily by using the rest of your Bible. And so, for those details in particular, Jesus interprets for us those couple of pieces that cannot be easily understood using the rest of your Bible. And if you look with me down to verse 20, Jesus just states outright what those couple of pieces are that couldn't be understood or interpreted any other way. And what does he tell us there in verse 20 about the identity of these seven lampstands? Look, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Ah, well, that's clear enough, isn't it? We're talking about seven literal churches here. Those are the lampstands that are being talked about here in this text. Seven literal historical churches that were there in the first century. And and there's much that could be said about those churches. In fact, I spent this past summer preaching our way through at New Community Church. I know some of you were there for that. Preaching our way through the instructions of Jesus for his churches and what he expects of us, the church, based upon his instructions to these churches. But here's the important part. Here in this text, these churches and by extension, our churches are intended to serve as a lamp reflecting not the light of their own glory to the world. No, 
The purpose of these lamps, the purpose of these churches, is that they would reflect the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of this world. And to ensure that we, as the church, are able to do just that, I ask you, look back at the text. Where has Jesus stationed himself? Right there in the midst of his church. See, he's not just the object of worship being at the center of the church. No, he is the one who is now making our worship possible. He is the light that we are now called to reflect. See, that's the significance of him being in our midst. He stands there now as a great high priest. And the next five details given to us in this text all highlight his priestly ministry for us. The first detail that you see there is as it relates to his clothing. We're told there in verse 13, the second half of it, that he is clothed with a long robe. And the robe that Jesus is pictured wearing here isn't just any robe. It's a garment that literally reaches to the feet. That's what the word there means. And and that word, when used in scripture, is always used for a distinctive kind of garment that is only worn by people who exist in elevated positions. Sometimes worn by prophets, other times worn by kings. But in six of the seven times where this word robe is used in the scripture, it refers to the garment that was worn by the high priest himself. And so right away, here we find, based upon his clothing, when we see him, we're going to see the one who stands today as the high priest now of our confession, the forerunner as Hebrews tells us, who has entered into the presence of God before us, paving the way for us to now come into the temple of God's holiest holies. And his clothing is an indicator of his function. But not just his clothing. You can keep going there and you can see another aspect of his priestly function. And that's really what we could call his badge. In the the last part of verse 13 there, you see this golden sash with which he is girded around his chest. It's a marker of the dignity and the glory that he alone possesses as our great intercessor. See, in Exodus chapter 28, we find that the the sash of the high priest was a marker of his great dignity and exalted position. In the ancient world, working men wore a sash or a belt around their waist so that they could lift up and tuck the hem of their garments into it to get down to work. But people of higher elevation and status, they they wore that sash up higher, wrapped around their upper chest, thereby symbolizing the elevated nature of their work, right up underneath their their armpits, because they, they had no need, you see, to tuck in the hem of their garments to get to work, because they were in an elevated position. See, in the Old Testament, again, the high priest wore a sash like this, but his was embroidered with gold. But the sash that Jesus, our great high priest, wears, his is made entirely of gold, not just fringes on the edges. No, his is indicating that he is unlike any other priest who has ever been or ever lived, and he is better than any of them. He is a better kind of priest. He is dignified and glorious, and there is no shortcoming in him whatsoever. That's what this indicates here in the text as we see the way that he is clothed. We keep going in verse 14, and you come across the description of his hair. The emphasis here is on the color of his hair. 
And you get that from the way that John struggles to describe the whiteness here. It's like white wool, he says, or even better yet, like the whitest of pure snow. Now, I know personally some people who have the most glorious manes of beautiful white hair. And I will not name any names at this point. But just know that I envy you and I hope that in my elderly years I resemble you. See, even the greatest head of white hair amongst humanity here on this earth, it does not compare to the image of what the Apostle John is seeing here. See, and we know that because a parallel description of Jesus' hair can be found on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' clothing was said to be white as light, whiter than any launderer on earth could get them. A struggle to capture the absolute purity of this whiteness. And and that's what's in view here. Daniel chapter 7 indicates that the whiteness of his hair is an indication of his absolute perfection, which again is essential to his priestly role because all the other priests, they all had to purify themselves. But this Jesus, he stands in perfect holiness, brilliant whiteness, Entirely pure, no intercession necessary for him. As our priest, Hebrews tells us, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted. That's what we should understand of him as we look at this picture of him that the Apostle John is giving to us. But we keep going because John does not just stop there with his hair. He talks also about his eyes. And it's because of this perfection, look at what comes next here in the second part of verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Well, what does that mean? It means that he has every right as he looks around at his church in which he is standing in the center of it to look around with a searching, revealing, infallible gaze that penetrates down into the very depths of his church, revealing to him with piercing clarity, the reality of everything that there is to know. Friends, here's what this means for us in our life within the church now today. It means that there is absolutely nothing that can be hidden from the gaze of King Jesus. No, according to this text, he is here, he is in our midst, and his gaze is with the eyes of flaming fire that see literally everything. Every secret thought, every hidden desire, every motive, every deed, every little scrap of sin. He, he knows about all of it. So much so that Hebrews 4.13 can say to us of him, No creature is hidden from his sight. None. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must now give an account. And apart from his grace, that would be a very frightful reality. But here's the comforting flip side of this truth. that Because he gazes with eyes of flaming fire, not only does he know the reality of us, but he also understands it perfectly. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says he had to be made like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. For he himself has suffered when tempted, and here it is, so that he may be able to help those who are being tempted. And so when you suffer the strain of temptation, don't run from the fiery eyes of Jesus. They're going to see you no matter where you go and what you do. 
He sees you. Instead, you can run to this Jesus with full confidence that he will help you. We keep going here. There's a final aspect of his priestly nature and that's seen here in his feet. And this detail is very difficult to know the exact translation because it's honestly the only time that this word is ever used in either biblical or extra-biblical ancient Greek. But the best sense of it, as we try to put it back together, is that he's talking here when he says in verse 15 about his feet being like burnished bronze that have been refined in a furnace. He's referring to the highest quality bronze while it's really still glowing in the fire. It's a mesmerizing kind of image, a beautiful, pure, luminescent image where Daniel uses the very same description back in Daniel 10 that the arms and feet of Jesus gleamed like heated bronze. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means here that the feet of Jesus now are perpetually in a condition of readiness to come to minister to you with the greatest of strength. That's why they're pictured as bronze with the greatest kind of beauty. That's why they're burnished bronze and the greatest kind of purity imaginable. That's why they're still glowing in the furnace. This is distinct, you see, from the old priesthood that once was, where in Exodus chapter 38, we're told that the priests had special tools for the washing of their feet before they engaged in intercessory service to be prepared well for the task that was before them. But Jesus... None of that preparation is necessary because his feet stand perpetually ready to go and intercede on our behalf. See, all of these descriptions here that we've just gone through, whether it's his clothing or his badge or his hair or his eyes or his feet, all of them are indicators to us of the more perfect ministry of King Jesus in our midst. It's clear that John's eyes, as he's gazing upon this glorified Christ, they they started out at ground level with his robe, and they moved all the way up to the crown of Jesus' head before coming back down and ending at his feet, where John gives him a full once-over. And the first thing that John notices about him is that he alone has the status The dignity, the purity, the omniscience, the ability to fulfill this function that is so essential to your Christian life before God for you. And here's the significance that now provides us with hope because this is who our Jesus is for us today. Hebrews 9.11 tells us that Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that are to come. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. My friends, as you sit here today and hear this description of Jesus as he actually is, fulfilling his priestly role for you, is that not the most beautiful picture of who your Jesus is that could possibly be imagined? You see, he's pictured here as being in the midst of his church, a great and merciful high priest who can understand and sympathize with our weaknesses. He is seated at the Father's right hand, interceding there on our behalf. And and this is what your Jesus is concerned with right now. Your purity, your progress, making us now into the church, the, the perfected people of God. And so he moves amongst us, supplying and satisfying purifying and pruning. And and how are we now to respond? 
to that reality. Well, in the words of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, I challenge you, the author of Hebrews says, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the high priest of your confession, who is faithful now. This world is heading for destruction. We've heard that chronicled here for us already this morning. But you and I, we have a faithful high priest who is active and able for us, even here right now. And it's in him that we place our hope and trust. Amen? And so we can say with the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But you see, my friends, this is only the first accounting of the number one office of Jesus because there's still two more offices to go here in this text. So let's keep on moving and see what else Jesus is occupied with here in this vision. You're starting to see why John was maybe just a little bit overwhelmed by the things that he is seeing here? Well, here's what else Jesus is doing. We're far from done. See, not only is Jesus serving as a perfect priest, but he is also ruling as an exalted king. And that can be seen here in the very next details that are given to us in this text. Because here in the middle of verse 15, the description shifts very subtly, where John continues his description of King Jesus, but he doesn't insert any kind of transition between the priestly garb and now this description of his royalty. It's clear now, as we look at the background of these images, that he's no longer drawing from the biblical imagery of the priesthood. No, now the biblical background of all the images that come next shift to an image of royalty. And the lack of transition in the text, you say, well, why didn't John say, now we're going to talk about Jesus as king? Well, the lack of the transition in the text is actually important. Because it shows us how skillfully the person of Jesus merges now the two offices of being both priest and king into himself a single person. There is but one description of him. And yes, there are priestly functions, but now there are royal functions as well. And that is a perfect fulfillment of the prophecy that is given to us in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, for instance, where we're told that the Messiah would bear royal honor, he shall sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest forever on the throne. See, even the greatest king of Israel, David, never fulfilled or even came close to fulfilling this prediction. The office of king and priest, they were always kept separate. The king is not the priest, the priest is not the king. But as we look at Jesus here, those two offices now become one. And here in him, we see him as both the royal king and the perfect priest all at the same time. He doesn't just serve the church as its priest. No, he reigns over the church now as our king. Look here at the way that King Jesus is now described in this text. And you can see his royalty in these next four details that show us truths about his power, his authority, his judgment, and his glory. Look at verse 15. We talk about his voice. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, if you've ever been to a place like Niagara Falls, you understand the idea in the text here. I know locally, maybe we've got a place like Johnson Shut-In State Park where there's this 
babbling brook of water that might occasionally rise to the level of a roar. That's not the nature of King Jesus' voice here in the text. This is the loudest, most deafening kind of deep, rumbling roar that is imaginable. So loud that you've got to get into your neighbor's ear and shout to be heard. If you ever take one of those ferry boats down to the base of Niagara Falls and, and sit there just a little ways off, you know you've got to really make yourself known to be heard. That's the idea here. It's a contrast. It's an enveloping, comprehensive kind of noise that is echoing back and forth. That's the sound of King Jesus' voice. That's the mighty voice of Jesus. See, this description speaks to the great power that he has. And we know this, don't we? When an absolute monarch, when a king speaks, stuff happens. Why? Because he has the power to enforce the sound of his voice. But when King Jesus speaks, the earth shakes, we're told in Scripture, because there is no king like Jesus. And so what does this mean for the church? Well, it means that when Christ speaks, the church must listen. That's what it means. The last time John had seen Christ in this way, what had the Father said about this roaring voice? He said with a roaring voice, this is my beloved son, You now listen to him. And so we must, as the followers and the subjects of King Jesus. But John's description continues to go on here. In verse 16, we find what's in his hands. You know, if you look at the hands of an earthly king, what are you going to see? For instance, if you go back and find a portrait, a photograph, a painting of the newly minted British King Charles. I know we don't spend a lot of time looking at King Charles because we're Americans and he's British. But if you did go back and look at a picture of his coronation, for instance, what would you see held there in those newly minted kingly hands? You would find a scepter, right? An image of his absolute authority there. And that's what we find here in Jesus's hand. We find seven stars As Jesus has already explained to us down in verse 20, this is an image that we can't explain using the priestly or the kingly imagery in the rest of Scripture. So Jesus has made sure to make sure we understand what this means. What verse 20 explains is that these stars that he holds in his hands, they are the messengers of God to his church. These are the symbols of his authority. Now, the messengers of the church, I know the word there in your Bible perhaps might say angels, And that's because the word here in the text is angelos, which is a word that can refer to a literal physical angel, or it can refer to one who is simply a messenger. Now, that's something that may be a little bit confusing here in the interpretation of this text. But personally, I don't believe that this can be a reference to angelic beings. And the reason why is because as you continue to work your way through chapters 2 and 3, some of these angels are being confronted as being in the church and being in sin, which leads me to believe that these are human beings who are messengers from Jesus Christ down to the church. The best sense here, then, is that Jesus is talking about the leadership of his churches, specifically the leaders who proclaim his word, his message to his people. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm calling myself or any other pastor a star. Please don't tell the elders that I said that back in my church, all right? What it does mean, though, is that the word of God in the mouth of a messenger is the scepter of authority that is held in the hand of King Jesus. 
He's saying here that his messengers are rightly clutched within his hand, not for the sake of their protection, but for the sake of his control over them. And their responsibility, their responsibility, my responsibility, the responsibility of any messenger to the church is to proclaim only the message of Christ, to take his word and get it right. For it's only the word of God in the mouth of a messenger that is the scepter of authority held in Jesus' hand, which raises the stakes, folks, on what we do when we gather together as the church. It raises the bar of accountability on anybody who steps into a pulpit and opens the word of God to faithfully explain to you his people, his word, and say nothing else. See, that puts a burden, too, though, on all of you to listen when the word of God is opened. That's some really serious stuff. But all of it points back to the authority of King Jesus that is delivered to us through the mouth of the messenger as that messenger explains to us the very word of Christ. And that now gets down to the next detail here in the text, a detail that references the mouth of Jesus himself. This is really serious now as you get down into verse 16. Because as we're going to find here, there are some pretty sobering consequences if you deviate away from the word of God. And that's the reason for this next image. See, if we don't listen to his word, if we reject his word, if we deny his word, well, then there is a sword that is pictured as coming out of his mouth. And it is a double-sided sword, we're told. The sword is the words that he speaks, and those words, they fall upon those who fail to listen in judgment. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, speaks to the identity of the sword. It says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What are we learning here? We're learning that Jesus is the king, and he has the right to pass judgment on those who do not heed his commands. That is the image here. The two-edgedness of this sword, it doesn't just refer to the sharpness of the sword. Ooh, it's a sharp one. Or does it refer to the style of the sword? It's a cool one. No, it means that this sword, as it proceeds from the mouth of Christ, his word, it, it cuts both ways. It both protects us and defends the church from error outside, but it also protects and defends us from any deviation, sinfulness, and division from the inside. That's the impact of this being a double-edged sword. See, he has the right to wield it because he is the king. But then there is one other detail that is given to us here in chapter, or in verse 16, the last part of it. It refers to the nature of his face. Finally, we come to the description of the face of King Jesus. And what we see being displayed here, friends, it is the fullness of the glory of God on display in the face of Jesus Christ. When you look at the face of Christ, what you see there is the fullness of God's glory. You see his essential nature as it shines through the person of Jesus Christ. Indeed, Hebrews 1.1 has told us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power. That's the reality of who your Jesus is. And that's the Jesus we see here in this text. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, as the book of Revelation is going to go on to proclaim time and time again. And so what is the result of seeing this king? Well, look at verse 17. John says, when I saw him, 
I fell down at his feet as though a dead man. Which, by the way, is the response that every single human being who confronts the glory of God always has. Just go back and look at Moses, or look at Daniel, or look at Isaiah, or look at John and Peter and James on the Mount of Transfiguration, or, or you see John here in Revelation chapter 1 responding this way. And that's very instructive for us now, because as we sit in our churches, as we look at the reality of our King Jesus, and we place our hope and confidence in him for the future of the world, we should also be bearing in mind that when we talk to Christ, when we talk about Christ, when we worship Christ, when we think of Christ, his authority and his glory are such that one day we will stand before him and we will be utterly blown away by what we see. So do you think of him that way today? Do you see him as your king of kings? And Lord of Lords, if you do, then it should dictate the way you interact with him, the way that you worship, the way that you pursue the mortification of your sin. It would impact the way that we cling to him in our urgent worship. It would impact the way that we would be eager to open his word to know him better. It would impact us in that we would be racing now to repent from our sin, knowing that it is in utter defiance of King Jesus. The one who stands glorified in heaven, ruling and reigning forever. So I ask you, is that you? Do you respond to him that way? But see, there is one more aspect of Christ's work that is given to us here to consider now in this text. And it's really the final office of Jesus. We've seen him here in this vision functioning as our priest. We've seen him here functioning as our king. But let's look at this third and final description that is given to us. What we see here is him proclaiming to his church as its most powerful prophet. Well, let's finish up John's vision of Jesus Christ with one final office, Jesus as our prophet. Now, I know that that is a foreign concept, to be sure, because we think of prophets as being there in the time of Scripture specifically. We don't believe in prophets running around here today. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is not functioning in this way on our behalf. And this office is no less important than the last two. Now we know what a prophet existed to do, don't we? A prophet wasn't someone who just saw the future as though that were a very cool party trick. No. What was the primary function of a prophet in the time of the scripture? Well, it was to deliver the truth of God to the people of God by giving them the word of God. And oftentimes he would verify the reality of that message from God by forecasting the future. Well, that's really what Jesus does here in this text. And here's what's really amazing. Instead of simply telling the future and verifying his message, which is going to be the rest of the book of Revelation, he reminds John of one compelling truth, that he is the future. And that's the reason why there in verse 18, he says, I am the first and the last. Well, I'm sorry, that's the end of verse 17. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus says, I I can be a prophet. I'm fully qualified to be a prophet because I am the future. Not, I don't need to use the future to validate my message because I am that future. I am both the first. I was there at the beginning and I will be there at the end. 
See, the idea is that all things begin in him. All things will find their end in him. So fear not. And my friends in the church of today, that's what Jesus does here. And this is not a message only for John. It's a message for us too. Because Jesus comes to his church by way of John with a reminder of what is true. And the substance of his prophetic message to his church is that he himself is the definition of what is true. And because of that, John, the seven churches of Revelation, you and me and our churches today should never be afraid. Come what may in the world around us, we have the ability to fear not. There is no cause for fear. And that was a vital message, I would remind you, to an early church that existed under the imminent threat of of fiery trials and profound, intense persecution. And after all, isn't that the reason why John's on the island of Patmos to begin with? I mean, look back at verse 9. John is imprisoned on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony, the truth about Christ. And yet, despite that, the message of Jesus to John is that you have no need to fear. Why? Well, John gave us the answer to that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. See, friends, it's because of the power of God, the power of Christ in you, that you have the ability to hope in days of darkness. He is the one who guides you amidst days of profound grief. He is the one who will sustain you in the face of opposition that you and I might face in our culture. And yes, it is even the power of Christ in you that will enliven you before the lions, if it were to come to that. This is the message of Christ for his church. Look at verse 18. He says, I am the living one. I love this now. Behold, I died, and look at me now. I am alive forevermore holding in my hands the keys to the place of death and the place of the dead. And so, who is there to fear? For if Jesus holds the keys to death itself, what is there now that can separate me from him? Indeed, there is no one now who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even our greatest adversary, death itself, has been overcome already by Jesus Christ. And now he comes here in this text to his church as a powerful prophet to declare that very mighty message that he is the very definition of life having overcome death. To put this truth the way that Jesus puts it in a different text, this now is the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, I think it's very important for us Christians to not fear Do not get all concerned about the destination of this world in its future. Because what we've seen here this morning, right here in this text, this is the Jesus whom we follow. This is the prophet and the priest and the king whom you and I, we, are privileged now to serve. This is the king of heaven. And we've seen here in this text exactly what he's doing. And the day will come when he is going to turn that key in the lock of death's door and set you free from this body of death and bring you into the presence of God. 
The day will come when all wrongs will be made right. The day is going to come when he will indeed overthrow the system of this world. And and he will bring you there into the presence of God and fulfill all things in himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us so that in that day, at the fullness of time, God now may be all in all. And he will do that through his agent, your prophet, your priest, and your king, Jesus Christ. And on that day, When you see Jesus, all of the chaos and the confusion of life in this world is going to be worth it. Because on that day, you, like John, will behold for yourself your perfect prophet, your priest, your king. So, as we here today at this prophecy conference consider those things that shall be, the context of most of the book of Revelation think it's important for us to never forget the reality of those things which already are. For it's only as we set our gaze on Christ and we are preoccupied as his church with a vision of the glory of God and the glorified person of Jesus Christ that we are qualified now to place our hope in that which is to come. That which is Jesus Christ upon his throne must come before that which will be. So, as we consider these things, may the person of Christ our Savior be at the forefront of our minds. Let's close in a word of prayer.